You are listening to Power of Three with podcast hosts Richie Woods and Tom Capone. Our Power of Three guest today is Stephen Dodge, an Oceanside sailor from the graduating class of 2008 and product of the Fulton Avenue Elementary School. Stephen is a certified credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor and founder of the Long Island-based Slate Project. Slate is the acronym for saving lives from addiction through treatment and education. Through this organization, Stephen educates members of his audiences, whether they are students, educators, or members of the community, by sharing his very personal story about his battle with addiction. The mission statement of the Slate program is to educate youth with the intent to prevent the onset of drug addiction and to support recovering addicts in their pursuit of sobriety. Stephen is a member of the Nassau County Heroin Task Force and has spoken at many middle schools and high schools, including his alma mater. It is Stephen's fervent belief that when you speak from the mind, you reach a person's mind. When you speak from the heart, you reach a person's heart. But when you speak from experience, you influence. We thank Stephen for taking time out of his very busy schedule to join us and share his experiences with us. Stephen, you're a lifelong resident of Oceanside? Uh, yeah, 29 years. Uh, describe for us what was uh, it like growing up in Oceanside, your friends, your family, your interests. Uh, I, I love Oceanside. I love everything about it. Um, you know, growing up, I had pretty regular family. Um, mom and dad both loved me very much. Middle child, oldest son, definitely the favorite. And, uh, you know, got everything I ever wanted vacations um great group of friends most of which i'm still friends with today i probably have a group of 10 10 of us that have been like best friends since elementary school which is i think pretty rare but um, i tend to see that a lot with groups from oceanside what were some of the things that you did recreationally with your friends after school weekends uh early on i mean probably what every other little kid did uh, manhunt, you know, hide and seek, all that stuff, play hockey and basketball. And, you know, as time went on and, you know, things started to change and we started getting involved in other things, then, you know, that, that changed as well. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was doing things that we shouldn't have been doing or, you know, just getting together at a friend's house and hanging out. And, you know, once drinking came into the picture, you know, it was a completely different um, hanging out lifestyle. You know, we'd all get together. They'd, I remember in middle school, probably literally 50 kids would go out and just walk the streets, and we'd pick, like, a, a block that was dark that we could hang out in. Someone would get alcohol, and we'd all just drink and party there. And, uh, you know, obviously as time goes on, you know, the environment we go to changes and the things we do start to change in house parties came into the picture, you know, it wasn't too out of the ordinary. It's not like my group of friends was this outcast that was, you know, drinking and smoking pot, but um, definitely not what the average kid was doing. Was there a specific event or time when you realized that maybe what, what you and your friends were involved in was not the typical path that kids were taking? Uh, that's the That's the problem is that myself as like, an individual 
I choose to surround myself with people that drink and do drugs like me. So when I turn around, it's just almost like a validation for myself that everything's okay. You know, it's like everyone's doing it because I turn around and look at everyone around me and the people I chose to be around were the kids that were doing what I was doing. So it almost like validated my actions a little bit. But I mean, I mean, we, we knew we weren't good kids. <laughs> what was school like for you? Uh, school was good. I, I, I was always good in school. I wasn't like an A student, but um, I maintained like a solid B most of the time. And I never studied or anything, but I was always pretty good at, at taking tests and, uh, you know, befriending the right faculty member in order to escape by whatever I needed to escape by. And, uh, you know, I did, I did, I did all right. School was good. I liked school for social purposes too. Is it true that chemistry was your favorite subject? No, but my chemistry teacher was my favorite teacher. <laughs> <laughs> all the right answers here. <laughs> well done, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> But if my math teacher was sitting here, I'd say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what role did, did school play for you? Um, you know, as you began to recognize that, you know, you were dabbling with this or that, um, was it something that impacted school for you? Yeah, so, well, my, my studies or my grades definitely changed in my involvement with extracurricular activities changed but school most importantly i think it was like a, a way to escape almost because um the main thing i was always concerned about is my mom and like my mom knowing what i was doing and like getting in trouble with her was like really the only thing i cared about so we were always very very close and uh you know going to school and having that seven hour time frame where you know nobody knew what i was doing or how i was doing it and being able to meet with friends and kind of hang out you know it was like a, a way of me of like escaping any sort of tr I'd say trouble but I mean I'd get in trouble in school but like I really only consider trouble like getting in trouble with my mom mm -hmm. you know so I kind of use school as like that kind of like scapegoat kind of thing and uh you know um it was also a way a means of like finding people to drink with or get high with or do things with and uh you know i kind of use school as that i never really cared much for school or you know as like i didn't really ever care what my grades were or, you know trying to excel or do better i just wanted to skate by and uh you know just keep it moving and mm -hmm. just hang out with my friends and as i continued to to use drugs and drink and my addiction got worse the only thing that mattered to me was hanging out with my friends and where are we going to go this weekend and you know who's going who's going to get the alcohol and where are we going to party and that just became like paramount over everything else how does it start what was the uh time that your addiction began do you feel uh i feel like i was born i'm a true believer that you know i was born an addict and alcoholic right and it wasn't until I put alcohol in my body for the first time that I like unleashed the beast, so to speak, you know, but I always had you have to understand it's uh, it's hard to explain. Right. But like alcoholism, like the isms aren't drinking. Right. Like I have an alcohol problem. I, I mean, I don't have an alcohol problem. I have a Stephen problem. Right. And alcohol and drugs are my solution. So if you look back in my life, there's a lot of like isms that come with alcoholism that I always had. 
And uh, once I put alcohol in, that was the solution I found for my problem, right? So the first time I sipped alcohol, you know, I'll, I still remember, right? I'm, I remember specifically the emotions and feelings that were attached to my first drink and the emotions and feelings that were attached to my last drink, right? So, um, you know, the first time I drank alcohol, it was like uh, I was drowning my whole life and I finally came up for a breath of fresh air, you know? I was finally just... Ah, like how old were you then that was in fourth grade mm -hmm. and it's it, listen it's not like i was uh at the bar and mm -hmm. you know fourth grade drinking um but it was the first time that i made the decision to put alcohol into my body and i don't know what told me to do it or you know it, i just did it and uh i had this warming sensation throughout me and i felt like uh you know i fit into the situation i was in and i didn't have those like insecurities and fears and all that, and I knew it was because of alcohol, and, you know, it didn't start negatively affecting my exterior life in any way, I was, you know, still doing what normal kids would do, it was just, you know, when I'd have sleep, we'd have sleepovers with friends, and we'd hit the liquor cabinet sometimes when, you know, the parents went to sleep, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, I'd, I was in fourth grade getting wasted all the mm -hmm. time, but that was the first time that it came into, in, into play in my life, and, uh, at what point did you begin to recognize that perhaps this was more serious than what you originally had thought? Uh, it probably was like 11th, 12th grade. But um, at that point, I was I was physically addicted to prescription painkillers. Due so, to the wrist injury? Yeah, so I broke my wrist when I was in ninth grade. And uh, I got pins, pins in my hand. And the doctor gave me these pills called Vicodin, and I didn't really know what they were. The doctor just said, if your hand hurts, take two, and your hand won't hurt. Um, this was, you know, you got to understand this was like 2004, so this was before, like, the opiate crisis, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it was, like, right when it was coming up. So I didn't really know what any of this stuff was, and my hand hurt, and I took two. And then I smoked weed like I did every day after school, and the combination of those two substances just put me at a place that, like, I never been before in my life, right? I felt like complete for the first time, and uh, obviously, I want to feel complete. Everybody really does, right? So I started taking them on a daily basis, not knowing the repercussions, because I didn't know anything about these pills, right? And the thing about prescription painkiller—it's not just the mental dependency component; there's also the physical dependency component. So the more I took, the more I needed to take to feel that euphoric effect I felt the first time I took it, and when I didn't take it. I would go through withdrawals and I'd start to feel restless, irritable, discontent, sick in the morning. And the only way to subside it was to take another pill. So I got stuck in like that vicious cycle of addiction. And um, you came without any warning from your doctor. Your doctor said this is just good for your pain. And he did yeah. he tell you anything regarding? Uh, n not really. I mean, my my mom was there when I got my first prescription because we were in the hospital and they gave us. I think it was only like ten pills and. Um, you know, I went then behind, you know, my mother's back, and this is when you used to be able to do. It was called doctor shopping, and uh, now there's a like a computerized system in place where if I get a prescription today and I fill it, um, I can't fill another narcotic prescription right. for another thirty days. It's called I stop. Mm -hmm. um, but this was before that, so I'd be able to go to this doctor and say, "Hey, my hand hurts. Um, I need something to fix the pain," and they give me one, and then I could walk to this doctor on this corner the same day and say the same thing and then go to this doctor in this corner and kind of, hmm. you know, be able to manipulate the system. Right. And I had legitimate reason. I really, I had pins right, in my hands, right? right? right. So um, I, ha I had a um, 
knee operation, and my doctor gave me the Vicodin too. And I didn't know uh, at all, but I would take two, and then I would go down uh, to Island Park and do my physical therapy. But like you said, like the feeling of completeness, it's when I first understood, like, you know, what, how great that feeling is, you know? Yeah. You know? And then I would come home, and I didn't catch on right away, but I'd come home and say to my wife, God, these people are the nicest people I've ever met. <laughs> and they're so funny. I spend, you know, I'm in pain, but I'm laughing at these people. I mean, they're the greatest people. And then it took a while, then I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I remember taking a pill before I was going to sleep, and I felt like I was awake and asleep at the same time and just happy. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. what a good feeling it was, and it's dangerous. You yeah, know? it's really, and that's why people use drugs because they work, right? I right. mean, that's why drugs we don't do lie drugs. Is the expression, exactly. Right? So, I mean, when you're at that stage, you're still in the recreational part, right? But once you cross that line from recreation to dependency, there's no using recreational anymore, mm -hmm. right? So it's that's just what it is, and a lot of people, unfortunately don't realize that they're there until it's too late like I, like me. And the majority of people start with either an injury or they go into somebody's medicine cabinet and they find an old prescription from years ago that people just left in there. And that's the like, pretty most typical way that people get involved with that with opiates. Stephen, what was the initial reaction or the, the first time that you recognized that your parents and your siblings recognized in you that there was a problem? Uh, so for like the family dynamic, um, you know, families are always going to be at first in denial, right? But no one wants to believe that their kid mm -hmm. is, you know, at that, at that stage in their life or at that level of, uh, addiction. But I mean, my mom would catch me with like pot and stuff and listen, I'm a great manipulator and all addicts are. So I'd be able to lie and manipulate and get myself out of, out of whatever trouble, or, you know, situation I got myself into, but um, probably a telltale sign is, um, you know, changing group of friends and, uh, you know, start dressing different and acting differently. And, you know, your routine that you've had your whole life starts to change. And I, I remember I, I quit the wrestling team the in 11th grade the week before county championships when I was, like, seated fourth. And, um, you know, that's a huge red flag for somebody, right? because I wrestled from fourth grade to that point and I went to summer camps every year and it was my life and you know I just up and quit one day because I wanted to go hang out with my friends and you know that's a big for a parent mm -hmm. that's like a big sign that something's wrong so I mean listen I was a I was a troubled youth um but the thing is there's nothing like I was so good at hiding it there was nothing like major that somebody would say like uh, you know, at that point when I was in high school mm -hmm. that, um, you know, this kid has a serious drug problem. I was just like a lot of the other kids smoking pot and drinking to most mo the outsider looking in. That's what most people thought. But, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends as well. Not I didn't. Most of my friends didn't really know that I was taking prescription pills to the point that I was, you know, when you're, when you're 17, 18 years old and you're physically addicted to prescription painkillers, it's not like. A common thing I mean unfortunately nowadays it's becoming more and more common but you know at that and th that year those years it wasn't and uh, you know so I tried to I tried to hide it from as many people as I could where did the progression go from there so um, for some people it's very quick 
for some people is very slow. For me, it was pretty slow, to be honest. I used opiates for like nine years, um, you know, starting with that prescription. And, uh, you know, obviously, eventually you get cut off by the doctor. And now I'm turning to the street to buy it. And, you know, I got to the point where I was taking so many Vicodin a day that it was like messing my stomach up because Vicodin also has a lot of acetaminophen in it, Tylenol. And, uh, you know, you take too much of that, it's messes with like the lining of your stomach. And, you know, I was not feeling well. And, uh, I remember I went, I went to Towson university, um, right out of high school and I got kicked out the, uh, first week I was there for selling weed on campus. And, um, I had this one friend when I got back and I remember I couldn't, I couldn't find Vicodin for the first time ever. And I was going through these withdrawals and I was pacing back and forth in his room and pacing back and forth in his room and he was using these pills called Oxycontin and I heard of them before and you know I heard they were heroin in pill form and you know I said I would never do that and he op offered it to me and I said no at first because I didn't want to go go to another level you know and uh, I continued to pace in his room and I was getting sicker and sicker and it got to the point where it was be sick or don't be sick. And when I'm there, when I'm at be sick or don't be sick, I'm picking don't be sick every time, you know. And uh, I said, all right, I'll do the pill just this one time. I just don't want to feel the way I feel right now. And I did it, and um, it instantly changed my life. You know, my whole life started to revolve around those pills, and I was instantly addicted. And, you know, it, my life started to spiral way out of control, and that's when, like, things really started getting bad. And, you know, I used those pills for you know, a good probably eight, another four years. And um, it was, my habit was getting pretty bad. And, you know, the that's when iStop was really implemented. And so, like, the supply of them dropped significantly, mm -hmm. but the demand was still high. So now the price of them was so high. I was paying, like, $20, $25 a pill, and I was using close to 15 pills a day at the end. Wow. Um, you know, and then it gets to the point, I'm, uh, I'm unemployable. You know, I, I'm... I can't hold a job. I have no income. I have no money. I was scheming for money, you know, every day to, to just support my habit. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where someone said heroin's cheaper, heroin's more readily available, and heroin will get you higher. And you have to understand, like, prescription opiates and heroin really are the exact same thing. Like, they're all derived from poppy plants, and they all come, f they all affect your brain in the same exact way. Um, everything about them is exactly the same. So it wasn't like, a thought process should I do it should I not it just was like it seemed like the financially best scenario right. for mm -hmm. me at that time you know and that was it and, and how hard was it to get the heroin it was pretty easy mm -hmm. yeah it was, it was pretty easy it's uh I mean you you can find it anywhere it's not like specific to this town or anything mm -hmm. I was actually doing it in Miami because mm -hmm. I, I I went to school down there so I was after in, Townsend you went down to Miami well after Townsend I went to Nassau for two mm -hmm. years and kind of like high school 2.0 and mm -hmm. i was able to skate by like i did in high school and i got my gpa to like a 3.3 and transferred to fau and i went down to south florida mm -hmm. and that's when things picked up that's the opiate capital of the world oh yeah well of the united states yeah mm. it was they it was like there used to be pill mills and everything and did you make it through the college no 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 no, no. how long were you there i was down there for three years so i went mm. down at the end of 09, early 2010, and uh, I went from there to rehab. So I uh, 
I left there in like 2013, 2012. So you went from there to rehab, but you went to rehab in Tennessee. Uh, in Tennessee, mm -hmm. what was the um, significant event or the the thing that led you, you know, to make that decision? It's funny. There was nothing different from like the day before. It was like I got money the same way. I got high the same way i met the same guy for the drugs like everything was the same there was no like physical bottom i've hit physical bottoms right, right. that you know should have stopped or a normal person would say this isn't agreeing with me right but uh i mean know, that's that's the story that you always hear or you always see you know and you always hear that someone hits rock bottom and you know the image is a guy laying in the gutter. Yeah, you know, but like, what needle. is my rock bottom is not right. your rock bottom, yeah. right? Your rock bottom. So is, everybody's different. Yeah, like your rock bottom could be, you know, I got in a fight at a bar, and oh my god, that was that was right. so bad for you, mm -hmm. right? And I was doing that in, at sixteen, <laughs> you know. So my and, and on the other side of it, some people's rock bottom is death, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no, it's a person, it's a very personal thing, but it wasn't a fit. Like I was saying, it wasn't a physical rock bottom. It was a necessary emotional rock bottom right you seem different again when i say different than my picture of a person who goes through this in that it seems like you from everything you said that you always have something a little bit inside that little bit of common sense you know that little bit of like oh, yeah. you know this is really not good but you know i yeah, am addicted yeah. but in the it seemed like it it always weighed in your mind. Of that, course. You know. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was always a good kid. I was brought up right, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a lot of friends. People people liked me. Parents liked me. Mm -hmm. Everybody liked me. I, you know, I was... <laughs> I was thinking that, too. You know, like, you... In class, everybody liked you, yeah. and, you know, you made everybody smile, and, you know, yeah. that kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was always that kind of person. I still am, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, like, I feel like uh, I have, like, the gift of attraction, right? Mm -hmm. People are, like, naturally attracted to me, which is good, um, but... You know, um, at that at when I was going through it, I always told myself, "Oh, I'm just a kid, and I'm going through a phase, and mm -hmm. I'll I'll stop when I want to." And you know, just lying to myself. And but the the last day that I got high, it was well, I mean, way maybe two years before that, I like waved a white flag. I knew that I was a drug addict, and I was way past controlling it at this point. And I would literally, I'd quit every morning, and I say, "I'm not going to do this." anymore i can't do this anymore and by 12 o'clock in the afternoon i was getting high right so now i'm at a place where i'm using against my own will right and that's a scary place to be in right you're now i'm, I'm it's almost like i have to live the life that i'm living now and i didn't know any route out or any you know way to get out of it so that's a scary place to be but like i said i hit that emotional bottom and i looked in the mirror for the first time in a long time and i was like what happened right what happened to that kid with like the goals, dreams, aspirations, things I was going to do. I was going to conquer the world. I had so much like things that I wanted to accomplish when I was younger and all this stuff went out the window. And, you know, I was 113 pounds at 23 years old, right? I was completely famished. And I remember every time I got money, I'd want to eat so bad and like I'd be so hungry and I physically wasn't able to put money towards food every dollar i had had to go towards getting high so you know. how were you getting the money in florida did you have a job down yeah there? yeah uh -huh. i'm i'm like i said everyone likes me i was really good at interviews mm -hmm. so yeah <laughs> I, I uh i would get a job and you know I, I was good at getting jobs i just wasn't good at keeping them so mm -hmm. i'd get a job and you know I'd make some money get fired and then get a job and make some money and get fired and 
you know mm-hmm. and also you know you're scheming and you're doing things you know that you're stealing stuff and mm-hmm. stuff that you know that's not the type of person that i am or right. ever really was mm-hmm. right but when it's uh, in survival mode that's where you're going I, I guess it's um accurate to say that everybody's profile is different yeah i mean there yeah. is no profile so mm-hmm. i mean people all the time want to like profile what the average drug user is even honestly the scary thing is there's no profile for a drug dealer you know there it's not like it used to be in the 70s when you want to get heroin and you'd have to go to you know the west village in new york city and meet that guy on the corner mm-hmm. and be in a sketchy situation now it's like you walk to your neighbor's house and you say hi to the mom that you've known your whole life growing up you walk into his room and you buy buy drugs like mm-hmm. that's what it is now right and it's not like uh you know, a strung out individual, like you said, like mm-hmm. you you would picture that to be. Right. It's you could put up a hundred people in a room, and uh, you would never be able to point out who's the addict and who's the alcoholic. Maybe if they're in severe active addiction, mm-hmm. right? But if I went to a, a group of kids and I said I could never be able to say that one's going to be the alcoholic or that one's going to be the drug, you'd never mm-hmm. be able to do that because right. it does. There's no discrimination. Right. So quite literally, one day you just made the decision to turn it around or to, to well, take that first step. Yeah, so I, I mean, I had like these little windows of opportunities all the time where like these little windows would open up and I'd say, you know, I should probably stop, <laughs> you know, and uh, usually I'd let them pass. And uh, I had a, like this feeling inside that, that this was my last one. You know, I wasn't going to get another one of these mm-hmm. opportunities. And I had the decision to either take some action um and change my life or let it pass and probably die you know like today i could look at it as like a divine intervention right but mm-hmm. um you know at that time it was like ride or die take action now or die really and Steve, what's the first thing that you do then um so that's the scary part i right. burnt every bridge at that point in my right. life right so no one was talking i had no friends no one was talking to me i had no money mm-hmm. i my I, my dad wasn't talking to me because of you know stealing from him and my mom didn't want to hear it anymore, and I called a you know a hotline that I don't know where I even knew to call it, but I called it and uh, I spent like an hour on the phone with this lady, and you know I remember she was like I was crying and telling mm-hmm. her you know I need help I'm gonna die, and she said I'll call you in the morning, and uh, I was like she'll never call back you know, and uh, I woke up in the morning to her calling me. Mm-hmm. And she found me a place that accepted my insurance, and I went. I went the next day. I got on the plane. I went to treatment for 28 days. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was there, I learned about myself, right? And I learned about addiction. And I was given uh, tools that I could use and apply in my life while I got home in order to stay away from drugs and alcohol and continue to change my life. And I got involved in a program here. And, uh, you know, continued to, uh, my life cha- continued to change dram- guess, dramatically. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing I guess I'm ignorant about. Because in my mind, you know, you do the physical detox and then you do, you know, the counseling after. But the, you're at uh, Tennessee. You were able to get the counseling there, too, along with the... Uh, so, yeah, so it was it was a detox and a rehabilitation mm-hmm. center. So they, you know, detoxify my body off of the substances so I wouldn't go through, you know, withdrawals and be uncomfortable and then, uh, you know, then Did I they use that new drug Narcan or uh, Naxalone? No, so Nar- Narcan is actually for somebody who's in an overdose. So oh, okay. n- what Narcan is, is basically, um, so how drugs work, right, is um, you don't get high off the drug. You get high off of 
you know the um what's secreted in your brain right mm-hmm. so they hit those receptors and and it secretes stuff in your brain like right. dopamine that, right. you know that's the high that you get is mm-hmm. the dopamine rush and um they fit into those receptors at just right right and what narcan what narcan is is it's an antagonist so it comes in and it essentially it's bigger and stronger of a molecule than opiates mm-hmm. are and it fits into that receptor better so it kind of pushes it out of the way and sticks itself into that receptor mm-hmm. and it blocks it from being able to tap into your dopamine so it'll actually if you're overdosing that's what medic you know medics use it for if someone's overdosing they hit you with narcan mm-hmm. and it hopefully reverses that overdose and gets them out of the way of the receptors but was part of it that your treatment um, methadone or a different drug no no no, no. no. I, I um you know they use methadone is very dated it's not used mm-hmm. anymore because it doesn't work um but substitute drugs i i've always known about and uh i opted not to do that because i didn't want to um get Become reliant on, yeah, on something I mean, else yeah you're gonna get off of this to be on that right, right? Mm-hmm. i know i know a kid that's been on suboxone for you know many years and hey it works for him and he's happy and he's fine but um for me it's not something that i would want i wouldn't want to be dependent Mm -hmm. on something else in order to you know live my life so that was just that was my decision there and you know i'm happy i did it because i mean i'm just you know i'm not dependent on anything anymore so Stephen, when we first started talking um we talked about community and your connection to the oceanside community Um, what was your connection to a community whether it was in rehab or when you came back home, um, was how important was community to you and your path to recovery? Uh, very important, right? So, I mean, community, the definition of community could be different for whatever, you know, you're talking about. But the like you said, when I was in rehab, my community was just what's in those four walls, right? So um, it was the kids that or and adults that were in there and, you know, I fellowshiped with and you know, I felt like I was in this with them, right? And I got like that camaraderie mm-hmm. feeling and it that boosts morale and it you know, it helped me get through times that was difficult. I mean, I was there on my birthday and you know, my whole family was away at my aunt's wedding and you know, it was like there was a lot of things that, you know, I was like, Oh man, like I messed up big time but like having other people there to kinda like guide guide you through it and then obviously the counseling is big too. Um and then coming home I came back to New York and uh, you know, my best friend Tommy was um, was already sober at the time, and uh, you know, he brought me into now this new community of other young adults in recovery that I was able to do the same thing, fellowship with, and you know, um, they were able to help me guide me th- through situations that they went through that I was currently going through, um, and they were able to stay sober through it, right, and 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 teach me what it's all about, and then just like anything else right I, in order to keep it i got to give it away so i continue to do that now mm-hmm. with now i'm the guy mm-hmm. that's already been there right so there's mm-hmm. new people coming in so i have to continue to pass the message along we do want to get guy. into that but I, I just want to go back to um the community of those who initially started their path to recovery with you mm-hmm. you went through probably a very very difficult time i guess that's an understatement but or not uh y- yeah yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so you went through this experience with them did that bring you closer? Do you have you maintained a connection with with some of the people? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's a c- we have a common problem, but we have a common solution, right? And mm-hmm. these are people that, you know, I know I can call on at like three in the morning if something's wrong, and they'll come come to wherever I'm at, right? So I mean, I've I've developed friendships and relationships in you know recovery that you know I don't I don't believe anyone could find anywhere else, mm-hmm. and I still have them today. Yeah. 
So you talked about the need to, uh, or you felt that uh, turning around and, and providing the community with support yourself uh, was an important part of the process for you. Yeah. Why don't you talk about the, you know, the start of, of Slate and the evolution of that project? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it's funny. I uh, Something inside me just said, you know, I knew the town I grew up in and I knew the um, path that uh you know local communities were going down i was like how can i make a bigger impact so i kind of just walked into oceanside high school and i was like hey i want to talk to the kids it was like just as simple as that and they were like oh steven how have you been all the security guards knew me you know and, <laughs> so you uh, graduated 2008 so what year was this that the, you walked in uh, i walked in um i got sober 2013 it was right before i had a year so it was probably still 2013 and uh you know they were like oh let me connect you with somebody and um someone called me and they're like hey we heard you wanted to talk to the kids we you know i was like yeah like whether it's like the health classes or something like that and they're like we could do you one better we have human relations day coming up and i remember human relations yeah. day it was the day that i was able to skip school right <laughs> and uh it was just a day of you know all speakers and they were like you know you, we could sign you up for this i think it would be great and i signed up for that and all my old teachers saw me on the list so they signed up for me and um you know, it was, I ended up speaking seven periods in a row, um, which was a lot. And uh, it was wildly successful, you know, just judging by the kids coming up to me after. And some of them found me on Facebook and would, like, didn't want to say anything in front of their friends. Mm -hmm. But they're like, hey, like, this really impacted me and this is why. Mm -hmm. Or the teachers coming up to me and some of the teachers coming up to me and saying, you know, not just because I was their student, but, you know, this is in my family and right, you know sure. and listen everybody in the world Every knows family. somebody who sure. battles with some sort of addiction so um it was it was great and mm -hmm. uh then they referred me to speak at um for the police activity league um it was a basketball camp in uh oyster bay and um you know i started then they referred me to speak somewhere and i started getting all these speaking commitments and i was like oh you know, I'm taking off of work and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a lot, it's fulfilling, but, you know, I was like, maybe I can turn this into something a little bigger. And, uh, I decided to incorporate and, um, get a nonprofit status and, you know, start making it into almost like a movement, so to speak. And, you know, like I said to you guys before we started the interview, but I've done, um, zero outreach for this. I've never called one school or one person and said, Hey, can I come speak? Except for obviously the first time when I went to Oceanside, right. and uh, you know I was in ten schools last year, mm -hmm. so you know it's just it's it's just word of mouth, and that all that tells me is that you know it's making an impact, and uh, you know I can't change the world, but you know I can definitely help guide people and limit the numbers of people that fall into the path that I fell into. When I heard you say in another interview, I think even if you get through to just one student, that's it's it. all worth it. That's it. I mean, listen, is if if I spoke at schools for 10 years and only one person ever, you know, whether they came up to me or not, just saying if we had, like, an out ominous point of view, right, mm -hmm. and, and uh, someone someone didn't go down the path that I went down because of the seed I planted in them, then it's 100% worth it, mm -hmm. right? All the time and effort that was put into it would all be worth it. And Human Relations Day is coming up at, at next Oceanside week. next yeah, week, yeah, yeah. Yep. and you'll be there. I'll be there. And you'll be inspiring other students. That's, That's the word I was thinking of yeah. when you were talking. You're inspirational, too, yeah. and you're not just doing the educational part, too. You're inspirational not just to the kids, but you're inspirational to people like me. I And when I saw you guys speaking 
you know, I thought how great it was. And other adults that see you in the building. Yeah, it's an you know, inspiration. That's, that's the whole thing. And, you know, I I truly believe not, you know, you could have 10 years or 20 years sober, but I truly believe that not everybody has what I have, right? And, you know, the power to present, you know, in a specific way and reach and speak a specific language and reach a specific population of people. And, you know, um, I, I, I just, maybe part of it's my ego, right? But I, I truly believe that. And uh, I think that's why it works so well. Also, it helps that I look like I graduated last year. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's all, when you talk to any audience about anything, it's all about identification with Mm -hmm. the audience. So, you know, I, I, there's like a method to my madness. Like I wear, you know, regular, I wear, sometimes I wear mesh shorts and Jordans, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, the kids see themselves in me. And that's like, I think most important. I used to tell the teachers and the kids and parents, that it's all about relationships, and I imagine it's the same thing now. Doing what you're doing yeah. is connecting and establishing relationships that are trusting and um, approachable. Yeah, like like any 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 you know whether it's a business or anything, it's all about networking mm-hmm. and creating relationships and maintaining those relationships and making new ones. And you know, I I try I try to live my life very simply, and I just try to be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. You know, and learn from the mistakes I made and just try not to make them tomorrow, you know. I'm going to go all the way back to when you said that um, you had the predisposition to be uh, an addict. Because, like, you, I think you embody that. Because you're, think about who you are. You're intelligent. You have, you're all, you really are basically good. You are uh, personality. You are athletically good. You, it was, and you know that you are yeah. the best example that you know it was the drink that changed you, you exactly. Know, because and also in, in my mind, those great qualities that you had, you know, brought still brought you through. And finally, it was just the addiction that period of time when it was just the drugs and it made you a different person. And now it seems like you're that person again. It, it, well, I'm a new person. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the, see, I'm like. Uh, my mom said, she's like, oh, I got Steven back. You know, oh. I was like, no, you didn't, though. <laughs> you know, yeah. you got a new one. Because yeah. You don't want that one back. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's yeah. it's you, I'm I'm a completely different individual. Like the way even I just present myself or the way that even I project myself, right, the way I speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always spoke with an attitude or, you know, thought I was somebody I wasn't. And, you know, because I, I didn't know who I was. Right. And now I, now I, I'm learning who I mm-hmm. am. And, you know, you're always learning who you are. But. Um, I don't remember what we were saying right before that about how it's like oh, in your so, yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's so absolutely. It's definitely. I think a genetic it, predisposition. It, exactly. For. I I definitely think it is a mixture of nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely because I'm very. I, I was always very like easily influenced. So like you know, product of your environment, mm-hmm. product of your surroundings. But um, you know, I'm a hundred percent firm believer of you know you're born with that addiction right. you cannot be born with that addiction and you can use right. so much that you rewire mm-hmm. your brain into addiction mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. too um but for my specific case i feel like i was born with that and my my father battles with addiction mm-hmm. my younger brother battles with addiction my dad's dad mm-hmm. um you know my dad's whole side of the family right, right. there's there's a lot of addiction yeah, in my family we so. have a similar situation in my family like mostly on my mom's side um but you know cousins most of them are recovering as yourself and you know guys my age and yeah, yeah. women my age they 
I don't know. It seems like there's a religious component to that too. Like, I don't know if you're a part of that. I was going to ask you this before, but you know, they, they, uh, prayer is important to them. And, you know, they talk about God, like when they, you know, yeah. they talk about so, the recovery. I'm wondering if it's anything like uh, that. I'm definitely not a religious person. Right. I don't like, uh, listen, I'm, I grew up Roman Catholic. I, right. I, I still consider myself Catholic. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Christmas. <laughs> uh, you know, but but for me, it's not that um, I, f I follow any sort of like traditional you know religion, mm -hmm. but I do consider myself a spiritual person. And the one the the most important relationship in my life today is God. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the, if I've made every single mistake in the world every day in my recovery the most consistent thing I've had is prayer. Mm -hmm. Every single morning, every single night, I haven't missed a day since mm -hmm. the first day that I walked into into recovery. And I think, you know, there's... And also, look, all your family that's saying that they're successful in recovery, right? right? So there's a common thread there. Right. Um, but that's... There's no monopoly on recovery, right? That's just something that works for me. Mm -hmm. It seems to work. I mean, let's I'm not a religious yeah. person anymore either, but... Uh, it seems to work with many of these people. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I think yourself. The, whole, the whole thing is I don't I, – I have formed a new relationship with God, right? It's not like uh, an all-punishing God that mm -hmm. I may – maybe I thought I learned that in mm -hmm. religion class growing up, but that's how I always viewed it with, like, Catholicism, and that's not what I have today. Mm -hmm. it's, my, it's a God of my own understanding, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm able to, uh, you know, in, embody that and really, you know um, – practice that principle in my life today. Stephen, you, you mentioned your mom before, and I read somewhere that your mom always had a hand, her hand extended to you, oh, literally yeah. and figuratively, yep. and at one point you took a hold of her hand, mm -hmm. and that seemed to be one of the things that helped to yeah, turn I mean, it around. I can't give like parental advice on somebody whose kid might be struggling because I don't have that experience, but I know what my mom has never turned her back on me, ever once, not once. Um, it, even to the point where maybe she she shouldn't have got me out of that trouble, right? But my mom has been my number one supporter my entire life. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The people you always think are on your back actually have your back, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those, those are the, like you said, if, if she ever took her hand away, that might have been the day I went to reach for it, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so that's, I have to have my hand out to the next one because if I take it away, that might be the day somebody goes to reach for it, you know, mm -hmm. so. There's a movie, Beautiful Boy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw it. No. It, it with um, oh. Steve Carell and yeah, yeah, Timothy yeah. Chalamet. At one point, Steve, as the father of a, a son who's going through addiction, turns his back. He just doesn't have his hand extended figuratively. Yeah. And uh, so that, I guess that speaks to the point that everybody's path, their arc in terms of recovery, does look different. Yeah, and but also I get that, too. Because, I mean, listen, um, I believe in the disease concept of addiction, right, so, as does the American Medical Association. I don't think I'm smarter than the doctors, so I'm not going to try to prove them wrong, right? I believe that. and uh, But it's the only disease where you're abusing those around you, right? Like somebody with cancer isn't going into your pocketbook mm -hmm. and stealing money, right? So, you know, you're negatively affecting all those people in your life so i get somebody and how many chances are you going to give right i i get i get that right i understand that um is it the correct path i don't know right i don't know there's like i said if i knew the answer on how to get somebody so everybody sober i'd 
be probably a very rich man right <laughs> now, you know, but uh, that's not, it's everybody's different, mm -hmm. everybody. Stephen, we talked, again, we started talking about community. I'd like to bring it back to community. Sure. The Oceanside community now, 2019, where are we and, and what are we doing from your perspective as somebody who's really lived um, with addiction and relied upon community? Let's talk about from let's hear your perspective on and where we are with that. I think I think we've made great strides and great changes. Um, you know, even just like the schools, right? They've uh, they've definitely made some big changes. Even just incorporating my program into it, right, and uh, bringing me to the health classes and and you know I didn't that wasn't in school when I was in school, and maybe I don't, I don't think it was. You know, and uh, just the nobody's saying it's not in my backyard anymore you know and i feel like the community is coming together and um and trying to attack this from all angles and i think everybody's i mean listen everybody could always do more but i think everyone's doing a great job and it's definitely the path is definitely changing it seems like something that everybody can get behind so why not you know like yeah who who wouldn't even if it's not your kid it's, right. it's your neighbor's kid right. or it's the kid that your your friend or it's such your, the your right thing to do with. it's not something that you can argue with your neighbor about like you yeah. know it yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. it makes so much sense yeah i mean the only uh, listen people do argue that you know addiction's a choice and you know it's right listen i get it picking up the first one was a choice but you know if if I was able to just choose and say no one day, I would have done that, right? right? It's not as simple as that. And people, and that's okay. People don't understand addiction, and maybe I'm not the one to teach it to them, right? right but, right. Uh, you know, I, 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 I do think that a lot more people, like you said, are, like, you know, coming together and banding together and getting behind something like this. And, you know, even, like, I don't know if you keep were keeping up with the news on um, – on ma recreational marijuana being legalized mm -hmm. that's such a step but in the wrong direction mm -hmm. but, but we just our, opted our, out our nassau county we opted out you know supervisor said no it was just yesterday, or yesterday. i think it was yesterday yeah, yeah, yeah. we opted yeah. out yeah i went to the town hall meeting oh you did spoke up against it yeah uh -huh. it's like it's I hard just to don't imagine that that there are those who are opting for it well you know the people in uh in power in our New York government, you know, maybe not someone that I agree with, but, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I just don't get, I, that's what I said. I, I just don't get it. Why? Like, why are we having, we're now, we finally got to a point where we can all agree that we're in an opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. Why are we now all of a sudden going to talk about legalizing the gateway drug? I don't get, you know, I, I never made, it does, does, I'll never understand mm -hmm. it. It mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me. It's incongruous with what's going on. Yeah, yeah it, it just, just doesn't make sense. We're making, mm -hmm. like, like I said, the communities are making huge strides and huge progress. And why are we going to take that step backwards? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was, I'll debate anybody for any amount of time that marijuana is a gateway drug. I know that to be a fact. It's a stone cold fact. But, um, you know, and like, to to now say it's going to be legal like why would we ever do that it does it just i don't know it's just it's so like far-fetched to me that that's even a conversation that's being had it just i get it though it's financially oh my the government god wants yeah. to tax it and, you know right i get it but if you look at the when statistics when denver uh, had it that they made a million dollars the first day didn't they i mean yeah but look at look at the statistics of yeah. crime and homicide in denver mm -hmm. now it's up like literally over a hundred percent since mm -hmm. marijuana has been recreationally 
legal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I think there's a correlation between that. Uh, and listen, I'm I'm not saying everybody that smokes weed is going to shoot heroin. Mm-hmm. That would be crazy. That would be like saying everyone that drinks alcohol is going to be an alcoholic, right? right? But I am saying that everybody that shoots heroin started with smoking weed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. No one wakes up in the morning and says, "Hey, I think I'll try heroin today." Right. You know, that's just right. not how it goes. You know, it's a progression, and it always starts with either alcohol or marijuana or both. So, Stephen, when you're in front of an audience of students, what is the one message? If we had a student here right now, what what is the one message? Or maybe you can't just... I mean, there is no one message. You can't But the most important thing, I drive home every single time I speak because I don't want it to be... My my story to be misconstrued Mm -hmm. is, is that I'm not the like common result right it's not like oh this kid came in here and he spoke about doing drugs and then he got sober so i'll just do drugs and i'll get sober one day you know that's not reality the reality is i've been i've I've been to 20 funerals in the Mm -hmm. last five or six years 20 young people you share that with kids yeah i tell them that yeah and and what's the reaction but do you I mean, you see them reacting yeah, to that? Yeah, I mean, some of them, you know, some of them gas, some of them don't say anything, some of them laugh, right? But mm-hmm. it could be a nervous laugh or mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know. Everybody reacts different, but I mean, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Like, Nash, just Nassau and Suffolk, just Nassau and Suffolk, over one person a day dies from a heroin overdose. Nationally, every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes, somebody dies of a drug overdose in the United mm-hmm. States. That's more than anything I can even think of, right? Gotta be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot, you know? And uh, finally, politicians and people are starting to speak about it, but it wasn't even being spoken about until, like, this last year, Mm -hmm. you know? I remember the first time I I heard mm. a politician even mention it. It was, like, when Trump was running for president, it was one of his, you know, opponents brought it up, but... It's... Yeah, that's that's that is another conversation because it's kind of... A drug, not of affluence, but it's a drug, you know, that you need to be able to, like, afford. It's more of, like, areas like us that, you know, as opposed to maybe other drugs, I think. And uh, and it's been ignored for that reason. And now yeah. I think it's being, it's the other, going the other way for that reason, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's way past the point where it could be sw- you, swiped Right, you can't hide yeah, it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's here, you know. Right. And, I mean, think about it like this. Like, drunk driving was a huge problem, like a really big problem. Mm -hmm. And I remember growing up, it was drilled into my head. Right. Like, since I was in early elementary school, you can't drink and drive. You can't, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive. Crash cars on the front lawn of the high school with a message saying, don't drink and drive. And that worked. Yeah. Think about how little, I mean, listen, people still drink and drive, but it's not like it used to be. Right. People aren't drinking and driving like they were. Right. I mean, Uber was pro- is probably a big part yeah. of that, right? But yeah. uh, it's it it made a, a yeah, difference I know by my drilling kids, it in somebody's my head. My kids, same thing. You know, it's, it's stuck in their head. So. We we always were taught not to drink right. and drive. Kids need to be taught about this stuff from an early age, right. you know, and drill it into their head. Mm-hmm. So when they go to that party, because they're gonna go to a party and they're gonna be offered this pill or that pill or this or that. That they know to say no. Right. They can develop refusal skills and mm-hmm. you know other stuff like that. Even I was going to ask you also to respond to um, the question about what message do you try to uh, impart to parents or impress upon the parents 
I have to believe that communication uh, is yeah. an important part of your answer. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I speak to parents, I actually generally bring my mom with me and I have her speak also because, like I said before, it's about identification with your audience and maybe they can see their kids in me, but to give parental advice, I'm not really capable of doing mm -hmm. that. Um, but I do think having communication and, and having the conversation and not just you know, hoping it's not your kid or pretending it's not your kid, but having that conversation, wh whether it may be uncomfortable or not, it's it's necessary, I think, right? Mm -hmm. It's imperative. Yeah. I believe. It's vital. Mm -hmm. Last thing for me, and I'm sure Richie has something else. I have a hundred more things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we are running short on time here, but just um, maybe talk a little bit about what is happening with we talked before about Oceanside, the wonderful community that it is. But currently, Oceanside Safe is something that is working towards combating this problem. Yeah, so um, Oceanside Safe is a, co a, like a drug prevention coalition that was developed um, in Oceanside. And it's basically the goal is to get, um, you know, different sects of the community together um, in order to you know, to create preventative measures from, you know, substance abuse and alcoholism and other, you know, destructive decisions that go on. And, uh, you know, whether hosting events or meetings or things for the kids or, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, they get involved in. It's actually an acronym, and I can't think of what it is. And I helped think of it in the beginning. And I can't think of what it is. But, uh, you know, they're on Facebook. They mm -hmm. have a Facebook group. And um, I know Sarah Dowler, she's the health teacher at Oceanside High School. She, um you know, she started it, and, uh, you know, they're applying for a grant um, to get funding nationally because I know that uh, the federal government um, gives a certain amount for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they get that, then, you know, they're in a, a whole nother level. We can help. But it's people. ongoing. The efforts oh, yeah, in yeah, our yeah. community oh, are yeah, ongoing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're not going to stop because, right. you know, this epidemic isn't. So, mm -hmm. Back to Slate. To, um, where do you get the money that you that you need to keep the organization going, or is, or are you basically the organization? I basically <laughs> am the organization, <laughs> right? Okay. But I mean, we I, I charge schools to, right. to oh, speak. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if a person listening would want to send a donation, do yeah. you can you maybe give an address, or uh, would they go to your website? Yeah, they could go to my website, or we're on Facebook, The Slate Project. Um, okay. And if you message The Slate Project, it'll go right to my cell phone. I can answer any questions that come up with that. And what do you have ahead right now as far as speaking engagements that, again, people who are listening might want to attend? Uh, well, so the funny thing is with this, they usually call me, like, a, just a couple weeks in mm -hmm. advance. Um, and usually... When I'm speaking to a school, it's during school hours. Right. Um, so outside viewers typically wouldn't be able to come. Mm -hmm. uh, there are sometimes community. Do you speak at libraries? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have anything scheduled now. The majority mm -hmm. of it is in high schools and okay. middle schools because, right. I mean, the, the the goal is to you know prevent the youth. But I do speak at mm -hmm. you know public hearings and events sometimes. Right. But and you speak at Oceanside Library if you ask, right? Oh, yeah. I, I have plenty of times. Oh, you have? Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Good. I thought I saw that you were speaking I, on your website like, April 21st, but I 
must be, maybe that was last year. Or something. I, hope, I, I hope I'm not. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it may have been last year. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Maybe I am. I have to check on that. <laughs> well, Stephen, we want to thank you for taking your time to sit down with Richie and me. Yeah, of course. And thank sharing you. your very personal story. Anytime. And and we we do hope and and feel very um, positive that those hearing this this will impact them and hopefully impact members of their family or, or friends yeah, if the need is there. I mean, it's all about planting seeds, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I want to say how much I admire you, and I felt it, you know, that day in the gym, and you know, it's a great thing that you went through and you recovered, and that you're doing things for things for other people yeah, now. Thank it you. goes to the heart that you you know you had, yeah, and you still do have that really good heart, yeah. And, uh, you know, you take your your dark past and you turn them into your your greatest asset. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. You're very admirable. Thank really. you so much. Stephen, I appreciate thank that. you. Thank you. Like to remind you, our power of three listeners, that you can contribute to the overtime episode by submitting questions or comments to the voice message feature at anchor.fm or our email, rtwtmc at gmail.com. Thank you.